Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts today. There's another host that is joining me, Daniel Sun. Ayo! Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 107 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours of listening pleasure. So to see this full list of past Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and there the entire list of past Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published will be there. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is about nuclear disasters. And it's not the common ones you always hear about, Chernobyl or Fukushima or any of that stuff. These are some crazy ones that hardly anyone ever talks about. For an example, have you ever heard of a control rod being ejected out of the water and then stabbing and impaling somebody through the ceiling of a warehouse? I bet you haven't. But we talk about it in that episode. It's gruesome. So you get access to that episode as well as all of the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoots, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever, whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over radiation accidents. And I know what you're thinking. What's the difference between nuclear disasters and radiation accidents? Well, nuclear disasters is more of like the industrial accidents, such as like Chernobyl and Fukushima and those type of accidents. Now, these radiation accidents are ones that involve civilians that you hardly ever hear about. So how this episode is going to go today is that we're going to talk a little bit about what radiation and contamination is. We're just going to explain it a little bit. And then we're going to go into some accidents that me and Dan have personally picked ourselves. And I think in total we have four. We each selected two apiece. And there's a bonus story at the end that we're going to talk about as well. So yeah, that's how today's episode will go. So with that being said, let's get into it. When a news station covers a story involving radiation, they tend to exaggerate, creating sensational headlines, calling it deadly radiation. Majority of the time, this deadly radiation poses no threat or harm to anyone. These unknowledgeable media companies use these types of sensational headlines to put fear into the public just for them to get more views. 
However, on very rare occasions, there are exceptions. A lost radioactive source that was accidentally misplaced inside the wall of an apartment building, which families were unaware of, and it ended up killing numerous individuals. Or a radioactive source being scrapped and melted down by accident and then being used to make rebar for construction buildings, essentially making thousands of commercial buildings extremely radioactive on the inside. That is just a couple of examples of true deadly radiation events that you will never hear the news stations cover. But we will. This is Radiation Accidents. Alright, if you've been a long-time listener, you probably know that both me and Dan, we have previously worked in the nuclear industry for quite a while. Dan, you started in what year? 2012. And you spent the following eight years traveling around to different nuclear plants around the United States working? And uh, I started back in 2009, and I traveled around to various nuclear plants as well. And I eventually spent 10 years at one specific nuclear plant as a senior radiation protection tech, pretty much a health physicist. I mean, there's a bunch of different names for radiation protection tech in the nuclear industry. They call it RP techs, HP techs, health physicist. There's a bunch of different names, but it's pretty much a health physicist, okay? So needless to say, when it comes to nuclear power, or anything involving radiation or contamination, we both have some knowledge regarding it. Now, with that being said, we're going to discuss some radiation accidents that have occurred that not many people are aware of. But before we get into those, we first need to explain radiation, contamination, and all of that stuff. So that way, you have a better understanding of it whenever we talk about these crazy-ass stories. And trust me, they're freaking crazy. And I guarantee you've probably never heard of these before because outside of our industry, no one talks about them. And I know what you're probably thinking. Oh, I got to sit through a, a radiation and contamination explanation. This is going to be boring. I don't want to hear it. Well, guess what? It isn't going to be boring, okay? Because we're going to explain it to you in easy, simple terms really quickly. All right? So, Dan, start today's class off for us, please. All right, welcome to Dan and Aaron science class. Now everyone, sit down and shut the hell up. Yes, shut the fuck up, okay? Damn. So today's lesson is radiation and contamination. Now let's first start off with radiation. So Aaron, what the hell is it? All right, let me break this down for y'all, okay? Listen up, front and center, everybody. So radiation is a form of energy being emitted by an object. Now this radiation, aka energy, it is traveling through the air as waves. And guess what? You can't see the shit, okay? So it's pretty much invisible. Now, there are two types of radiation. There's ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. Dan, tell them about the first one. Okay, so let's start off with the non-ionizing radiation. So this type of radiation does not harm you and are things like radio waves, microwaves, infrared light, ultraviolet light, and other things. When this non-ionizing radiation travels through the air as an energy wave and smacks your ass, I mean, not literally, but when it hits your body, it doesn't do any harm 
and it doesn't destroy your DNA. All right, so that's non-ionizing radiation. Now let's talk about ionizing radiation. Now this type of radiation is what we're going to talk mainly about today. And this is the bad shit. This ionizing radiation comes from stuff like nuclear bombs, nuclear power plants, and many other things. So there are a few different types of ionizing radiation that we are going to talk about today. You got alpha, beta, gamma, and neutron. So imagine alpha radiation's energy wave as a giant school bus. It's big, it's slow. However, whenever this giant-ass alpha radiation hits your skin, boom, it stops. It doesn't go any further. Now, this alpha radiation is bad when you swallow it. Exactly. All right, so let's talk about beta radiation energy waves. Now, the beta radiation energy waves is kind of like a medium-sized truck. It's semi-fast. I mean, it's going down the road, and it's heading straight towards you, but you can block it with simple things such as, like, plastic. So it's not that big of a deal. Now, the main one is gamma radiation. Imagine gamma radiation energy waves as being like a tennis ball. It's fast as shit, and that son of a bitch will go right through you. And it can only be blocked by lead, water, and not other many materials, okay? So this gamma radiation is the main type of radiation that you see at nuclear plants. And depending on how much you are exposed to, determines if you are going to live, die, or if you're going to develop cancer. So, just like Aaron said, this gamma radiation can kill you by destroying your body over a period of time. Now, the speed of your death would be determined by how much radiation there is and how powerful it is. So just because you were exposed to a little bit of gamma radiation, it doesn't mean that you will end up dead in a few days. You have to be exposed to enough of it to end up dying a very horrible death. So there you go. We have a general understanding of radiation at the very basic minimum level. Now let's talk about contamination real quick because it's important in today's episode. So contamination is pretty much radioactive dust. That's how you can envision it as. It's tiny particles of radioactive material. Now, if this contamination gets on you or gets inside of you, then it can cause damage to your body for a long time. This dust just continues to emit radiation from it. And depending on the isotope, it could emit this radiation for a very long time. So, when you are exposed to gamma radiation, whether it be from contamination or someone had secretly placed a radioactive pellet under your car seat and it's emitting gamma radiation, what occurs to your body is that this gamma energy wave is traveling through your body at an atomic level, breaking apart things in its path, including tearing your DNA apart. Now, like we mentioned earlier, the amount of radiation that your body gets subjected to determines if you live or die. And something else worth noting is that sometimes when radiation travels through your body, and it damages your DNA, this damaged DNA doesn't heal itself right, then your body at an atomic level will start replicating this damaged DNA, thus creating cancer. Voila! Alright, so that's pretty much radiation and contamination, explained as simply as we could in less than five minutes. Which I don't even really know if that was less than five minutes, to be honest with you. Do you know, Dan? I don't know. I don't know either. Screw it. 
All right, anybody got any questions? No? Okay, class is dismissed. Get the f*** out. I like that lesson. Uh, I, I did too. I like our classes, Dan. Even though I knew most of that, I still learned a little bit, you know, more. Every day you learn something new. I love it. So now that we know all the basics of radiation, let's get into the meat of our episode and discuss some of these crazy accidents involving radiation that not many people talk about. Now, for this episode, like Aaron said, we each chose two different radiation accidents that we will take turns talking about, which, Aaron, seems like you're up first if you want to go. Absolutely. All right. So the first accident that I'm going to talk about is called the Juarez Cobalt 60 Contamination Incident. And this occurred only a few years before Chernobyl happened. And this entire accident was all due to one small mistake. Now, this small mistake ended up contaminating almost an entire country and exposing thousands and thousands of people to radiation and it ended up being the worst radioactive accident in North America. And I guarantee you, if you are not familiar with radiation, you have never heard of this accident. But I can also guarantee you that you've heard of Chernobyl and Fukushima. So just keep that in mind as we go over this. Now, Dan, have you heard about this Juarez Cobalt 60 contamination incident? I have not. Ooh, buckle in. This one gets a little weird, okay? All right. I, I like weird. All right. Now, even though this accident occurred in 1984, Dan, we need to go back a few years and talk about something real quick. And trust me, it'll all connect. So let's go back to the year 1977. During this time, there was a private hospital located in Juarez, Mexico. Now, this private hospital decided to purchase a Picker C3000 radiotherapy unit. All right, Dan, explain to the listeners what these radiotherapy units are and what they have inside of them. Okay. So these radiotherapy units usually contain sources inside of them. These sources are highly radioactive and emit ionizing radiation, a.k.a., you know, the bad radiation. This unit basically shields the source. Then the unit is placed over the area of the body that has cancer. The shield is opened up and the radioactive source is exposed and the person receiving the cancer treatment has that specific part of their body bombarded with radiation. So there you go. That is what this radiotherapy unit was, or what it does. Yep. Thank you, Dan. That was a great explanation. You're welcome. All right. So this Picker C3000 radiotherapy unit has a source inside of it, right? Just like Dan mentioned. And the source inside of these therapy units, it varies. Some have sources that emit a small amount of radiation, and other ones have these big-ass, strong sources that emit a shit ton of radiation. Now, this unit in particular that was purchased by this hospital in Mexico, it contained 6,000 cobalt-60 pellets that were around 2.6 gigabecquerels each. Now, I know what you're thinking. What the hell is a gigabecquerel, and what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to sit here and explain the different types of units of measurements and shit with you, okay? It would take way too long. So I'm just going to sum it up like this. This machine had 6,000 small pellets inside of it. Each pellet was cylindrical in shape and was one millimeter long. 
Now, even though these things were very, very small, they were extremely radioactive. Each pellet measured about 23.3 rim per hour at 5 centimeters. Ooh. That is a shit ton. I don't want to be near that. Hell no. If you have 6,000 of those things all stacked up on each other, oh my god. Now, like we said, all these pellets were contained in like this shield inside of this unit, and whenever they needed to blast this radiation wave out, they would open up this shield and blast the person with the radiation wave from all these pellets. Bloop, close the shield back up, and then eh, all done. All right. Now, if you aren't familiar with units of measurements or radiation, you don't know what 23.3 rim per hour at 5 centimeter means. So let me put that into perspective, okay? So we normally receive around 600 millirim a year from natural background radiation. That's everybody, no matter what you're doing. That's from walking around, eating bananas, soaking in the sun. Everyone receives around an average of 600 millirim a year. Now. If you stood near only one of those pellets for less than two minutes, you would receive the total amount of radiation you would get in a year naturally. Now, if you stood near one of those pellets for around four to five hours, you would start experiencing radiation sickness. And guess what? After eight hours, you would likely receive a lethal dose of radiation and you would end up dying. Now, this entire time, you have no idea that you're receiving this lethal amount of radiation to your body, right? Until around the four to five hour mark when you start throwing up and you start experiencing radiation sickness. And you're like, where the hell is this coming from? And you think, oh, maybe I got a stomach bug. When in reality, you just got a shit ton of radiation bombarded at you by this small little pellet. So, needless to say, these little ass pellets inside that machine, they were super radioactive. All right. So back to this private hospital that purchased this machine in Mexico, okay? They ended up receiving the machine, and they were like, eh, we don't really have a qualified person to operate this big-ass thing. So what did they do? Well, they just stuck it in storage and said, hey, we'll eventually hire someone that has the qualifications to use it. However, that person was never hired, and the hospital never used the machine. So it sat there in the storage unit for the next six years. All right, let's fast forward to December 6th, 1983, six years later. On this day, two maintenance workers for the hospital, Vicente Alarden and Ricardo Hernandez, were told to take the equipment from the warehouse that the hospital owned and sell it as scrap metal for the hospital. As Vicente and Ricardo you know, we're going through the warehouse and like gathering up all the equipment that they could sell. They happened to stumble upon this Picker 3000 radiotherapy machine that had been placed inside this storage warehouse six years prior. Vicente was like, hey, we should open this thing up and see what it contains. So he got a hammer and <laughs> smashed the top of this radiotherapy machine to try to disassemble it. Now, the top of the machine is where the source is at, and it's all protected, and he started to take a hammer at it. Now, this machine didn't have any, like, caution radioactivity or caution contains radioactive source inside of it. So, Vicente didn't know, 
Ricardo didn't know. They were like, hey, let's just break it down and sell it as scrap. So as they were hammering away, uh, they ended up coming across a silver-looking cylinder, which was the source itself. And they thought, hey, might as well put this small silver-looking cylinder in the back of my truck and sell it as scrap. So they loaded the small cylinder into the back of the truck. However, while it was back there, Vicente decided to get a drill and drill inside of the cylinder to see what was inside of it. Now, when he drilled inside of there, he didn't know that it contained those 6,000-plus Cobalt-60 radioactive pellets. So once he started drilling and pulled the drill out, some of those pellets ended up falling out of it, and he was like, oh, that's weird, and then he just, you know, kind of tossed the cylinder back into the bed of his truck with the rest of the scrap metal and started driving to the scrapyard as those radioactive pellets were just kind of like spilling out of the source and into the bed of his truck and kind of like rolling around and shit. And as they were driving to the scrapyard, some of those pellets did fall out of the truck and landed near various roadsides. It gets worse, Dan. Oh, man. So eventually, Vicente and Ricardo, they make it to the scrapyard, and they sell everything in the back of their truck for a total of $8.50. And they end up going back home. Now, on the drive back home, for some odd reason, Vicente's truck breaks down, and he decides to park it next to the Rio Grande River for two days. Vincent goes back to his truck two days later, fixes it, drives it back home, and parks it in the front of his house. The next day, Vincent goes to get into his truck to drive it to work, and it wouldn't start. He's like, what the hell? He pops the hood. Someone stole his freaking battery. Oh, my <laughs> God. Like, what the <laughs> hell? So he just, he was like, screw it. I don't got time for this shit. I'm heading to work. And he just let his truck sit there in his front yard for the next several weeks. And little did he know is that his truck was like extremely radioactive since it had those pellets in the back of it because the scrapyard didn't get all of the pellets. It got majority of them, but not all of them. So he had a few just like laying around in the back of his bed. All right. So there it was, a highly radioactive pickup truck parked in the front yard of this random guy's house for seven or so weeks. And on the surface, it doesn't seem that bad, right? I mean, the radioactive pellets aren't really that widespread. I mean, they're in the truck, some along the roadside, and the rest are in the scrapyard. It seems sort of contained. Like, if they were to recognize that, oh shit, we have radioactive material that's out there, we can contain it. Well, this is where things get really bad. So, you remember all of that scrap metal that they sold to that scrapyard, Dan? Yeah. Well, inside of that scrap metal, of course, was that radioactive source with those 6,000 or so super radioactive pellets. Now, at the time, the scrapyard had no idea that these highly radioactive pellets were in their scrapyard, and they just assumed that it was like a bunch of chunks of metal. So as they moved their like scrap metal around to different areas, these small pellets fell out, and they kind of spread themselves around to various areas of the scrapyard. And the scrapyard had a deal with a smelting factory. Now, this smelting factory would get scrap metal from the scrapyard, and they would melt it down and turn it into rebar and table legs 
that would then be used in construction and home projects. So, of course, this smelting facility started unknowingly melting down and mixing these radioactive pellets with other metals and ended up producing around 20,000 tons of super radioactive rebar and table legs. A week after that, those rebar and table legs were sent to various places around Mexico and even exported to the United States for construction projects. Now, I know what you're wondering. If Vicente, Ricardo, the scrapyard, and the smelting facility had no clue that they had super radioactive material, then how was all of this found out? How did anyone have a clue that this rebar and these table legs were extremely radioactive and it came from these places? Well, get this shit. This is where the story gets even crazier. So on January 16th, 1984, a truck that was carrying some of the rebar from Mexico was driving around in the United States and was delivering an order in New Mexico. Well, that truck driver ended up getting lost and for some odd reason ended up driving near the Los Alamos National Lab. Now, this Los Alamos National Lab deals with radioactive material. So they have these sensors that make sure that no radioactive material accidentally leaves the lab. Well, when that truck drove past the facility, those sensors that they had ended up going nuts. They detected a large amount of radioactive material, and in turn, the cameras outside of Los Alamos National Lab turned on and took pictures of the passing vehicle. So the facility was able to contact the driver, and an investigation started. This is when the U.S. officials uncovered the entire thing and notified Mexico, in which they started investigating the situation as well. Now, at the end of the investigation, it was discovered that radioactive material had made its way into 30,000 table bases and in 6,600 tons of rebar. Now, of those 6,600 tons of radioactive rebar, only 2,360 of it was unused. So authorities started looking into facilities that were built using it and determined that 814 buildings would need to be demolished due to them having unacceptable levels of radiation due to this radioactive rebar. It was also discovered that around 4,000 people were exposed to cobalt-60 radiation as a result of this incident. And that is the Juarez cobalt-60 contamination accident. Nobody talks about it. And by the way, there is still a lot more of radioactive rebar that they were unable to find. So it's out there somewhere. Now, you would think that something like this would be like the first time that anything like this would happen, right, in Mexico. Because if something like this had previously happened, you figured they would put in some, some like procedures and guidelines to stop this from happening, right? Yep. Well... Mexico actually had something like this happen years before this. And I won't go into super detail into it, but I'll kind of like hit the highlights of it. So it was in 1962, and a 10-year-old boy was kind of just like walking along the road, and he happened to discover a 5 Curie Cobalt-60 industrial radiography source that wasn't in its shielded container. The boy thought, meh, this little silver-looking thing looks cool. He picked it up, 
and he placed it in his back pocket. Oh, Jesus. So the 10-year-old boy ended up leaving it in his back pocket for the next several days. Then he took it out of his back pocket, and he placed it in a kitchen cabinet in his home. Eventually, he ended up dying 38 days later, and his family didn't know why. Then, a little over 80 days later, his mom ended up dying. Then 30 days after that, his two-year-old sister died. Now, at this time, nobody knew, like, why the hell everybody in their family was dying. They had no clue it was from radiation sickness and that there was a damn radioactive source sitting there in their kitchen cabinets emitting radiation 24-7 and their family was just sitting there eating their bowl of cereal like, hey, what's up? Just soaking it all in. They had no idea. You would think after like the first two deaths, you'd kind of be like, eh, but whatever. So after his two-year-old sister died, they started really investigating the family. And that's when the source was finally discovered. Somebody opened up the cabinet and was like, what the hell is this thing? They stuck up a Geiger counter meter to it and it pegged. And they were like, holy shit. So yeah. But after the investigation occurred and they found the source, it was already too late for their granny because she ended up dying 50 days later from radiation sickness. The only surviving member of the family left was the father. And just a side note, the total amount of radiation dose that each individual of that family received was around 5,000 rim. Now, to put that into perspective, 500 rim is the LD5030. What does LD5030 mean? Well, it means that 50% of people will die within 30 days. And, and that's from receiving 500 rim. These family members received over 5,000 rim. So, you know, they didn't really have a chance. They were going to die within, you know, 30 days or 80 days, you know. Dude, that's a shit ton of radiation being put out. Just, it blows my mind that shit like this happened and nobody's talking about it. This happened in 1962. The other one that I talked about in Juarez, that happened in 83. You know, and it's not like this shit stopped. It's still happening. I mean, we go from yours, which is in 1990, and then you have another one that happened in 2000, and then I cover one that happened uh, in 2001. And it's insane. So there you go. That's the first radiation accident story. And it only gets better from here, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know about better. <laughs> so, uh, Dan, I guess it's your turn. Do you want to tell us your incident? Yeah. But before that, we are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. All right. I'm excited to hear your incident, Dan. Because I see the title of it, but I have never heard of this one before. All right. So this one is a little bit shorter. It's the shorter of the, shorter of the two that I picked, but it's very interesting. So you've never heard of the Saragossa Clinic incident at all? Nope. Never have heard of it. All right. So this incident happened in December of 1990 in Saragossa, Spain, at the Clinic of Saragossa. Now, on December 7th, an electron accelerator that was used to treat tumors had broken down, and the hospital decided to call a technician, and the technician was sent out to perform the repairs. It took the repairman about three days to get the machine back up and running again. The normal operation of the machine started back up with it being used at, on at least 27 patients who were receiving external beam radiotherapy due to cancer. As December 20th rolled around the corner, the annual inspection of the machine by the Nuclear Safety Council had come up which would have been sooner, but due to bureaucratic reasons, it was supposedly delayed. Now, 
the Nuclear Safety Council, or the CSN, which the acronym doesn't line up because it doesn't line up with the English name of it, which I can't pronounce the Spanish name. Not even going to attempt it. Anyway, as they were inspecting the electron accelerator, they noticed something was off. They found out that the electron accelerator was powered higher than the normal output power. So while patients who were there for their daily treatment to receive 7 MeV were being treated with almost six times that at about 40 MeV. Now, after realizing that it was set higher than normal, they deactivated the machine, but the damage was already done to the patients that it was used on. The patients in that machine was used on started to suffer from irradiated skin burns and inflamed internal organs. Two months after deactivating the machine, the first mistreated patient passed away. By December of 1991, the last patient of 25 had passed away. But the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, established that only 11 of the deaths were due to faulty maintenance. So originally, the families and the Nuclear Safety Council pointed fingers at the hospital for being responsible for the accident. Specifically, the management of the radiological unit in the hospital. Then the manager of the hospital was like, bullshit. It was the maintenance technician who came to repair the machine and screwed it up. Now, who did the maintenance technician work for? General Electric. But not really. General Electric built the machine, but they decided to contract out for a maintenance technician to send to the clinic of Zaragoza to fix it. Well, they found out that the maintenance technician repaired it without following the proper procedure or using any instructions at all which led to it being set to basically full power at all times. Oh my god. How do you mess up that bad? I have no idea. And the fact that... Jesus. I would have started questioning if it took three days to fix it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And you would think that they'd have like somebody verify that it's set to the correct amount. But I guess not. No, like I figured... I mean, I still honestly put a little bit of blame on the radio, radiological unit because you figure you put it, you set it to 7 MeV and it's putting out 40. I mean, I figure they should be able to see that. My only guess is that they didn't have daily checks. They just had some like annual calibration that they did. And during the annual calibration of this instrument is when they checked it. They didn't do like daily checks of instruments like they do nowadays. No. That's my only guess. Yeah, I don't think people at the, like, the hospitals are taught to do like the daily checks and all that they're just they're taught how to use the machine that's it then of course someone comes out and does the checking but in the end the technician was found guilty in court and then general electric was found guilty secondly and had to compensate the affected families by paying around 2.4 million euros which then of course the machine was then taken out of operation in 1996, and they scrapped it discreetly to avoid any more publicity from that machine. Which, I mean, what, are they going to have the guy from Ghost Adventures buy the machine or something? The deadly radioactive machine killing people. Honestly, <laughs> considering that's, this is like the whole thing, it just makes me think, they scrapped it. Where did they send it to? Who did they send it to? Is it another, another like scrapyard just waiting for the source to be like let out? No, what they do is they take out the source and they usually ship it to like a facility to hold the source. And then the facility has to have a license that's high enough to be able to contain the source. 
Uh, seems it's just a lot of these incidents are people storing them away. Then they're just like, all right, get rid of the machine. We don't care. Yeah. Well, that's a very interesting story. And uh, what a dumbass maintenance technician, huh? I feel sorry for those people. He pretty much cost people those lives. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So are you cool with me going over my next one? Yeah. You go next. All right. So have you heard of the Kramatorsk? And I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing the name right, but I'm trying my best, people, okay? The Kramatorsk radiological accident. I've seen the name, but I don't think it has anything to do with radiological shit. Okay. All right, well, let me hit you with some knowledge and tell you about this story. So in the late 1970s, in Ukraine, there was a quarry, and they were digging up gravel and rocks, and they had this highly radioactive cesium-137 capsule. Now, for some reason, they ended up losing it in some other gravel of theirs. Now, the crew of this quarry ended up looking around for like a really long time, and eventually they said, screw it, and they just gave up. They were like, hey, we lost the highly radioactive source somewhere in our gigantic gravel pit. We have no idea where it is. If we come across it, then we'll report it to people. But as of right now, it's lost. All right. So as the years continued on, it's not like the quarry quit, like, digging up their gravel and giving it to people, you know, to make concrete out of. They kept, you know, kept on their production. They didn't stop just because they had a highly radioactive source somewhere. They said, screw it. Kept selling their gravel. Eventually, a company came and said, hey, we need to buy gravel from you. We're going to use it to build an apartment building. So they purchased a lot of gravel, and they started building the apartment building, which ended up being finished in 1980. And all of the families ended up renting it out and moving into it. Now, only a year after it being officially opened and the families moving into it, an 18-year-old woman who was living there in the apartment developed leukemia and suddenly died. Of course, the family was like, oh, how tragic. Everybody in the home was like, leukemia, died so young. You know, they just thought, what bad luck. A year later, her 16-year-old brother ended up developing leukemia as well, and he died. And it doesn't stop there, because shortly after that, the mother of the family found out that she had leukemia, and she ended up dying. Now, the doctors in the area were initially unable to explain why this family was all developing leukemia and dying from it. They just finally came out and said, hey, it's probably because they had bad genetics. And of course, because of that statement, the situation didn't really get much public attention. So after that entire previous family had died in that one apartment building, the apartment management, you know, they were like, hey, we still need to rake in this dough. So they decided to rent that room out to another family. This other family ended up moving in, and guess what? Their son ended up developing leukemia, and he ended up dying. Shortly after that, the youngest son of the family was diagnosed with leukemia. Now, at this point, the father of this current family that's staying there was like, something's going on with this building. So he started to investigate what the hell was going on in it. He ended up contacting a local health station and requested that the radiation levels of the house be checked. A health physicist ended up going up to the apartment building with his radiation detector, 
He was just walking around looking at it, and all of a sudden, boom, it spiked, peaked, and it wouldn't go down. And he was like, well, I think I have a messed up meter. Let me go downstairs and change it out. So he goes downstairs, he gets his other one, goes up, it pegs out again, and he's like, well, we got a big f***ing problem here. And the health physicist said, hey, there is dangerous levels of radiation in this apartment building. So they all started to look around, and then in 1989, it was discovered that the main source of this dangerous level of radiation was coming from a radioactive capsule that was embedded in the concrete of the wall of this apartment building when it was built. That radioactive capsule was originally the one that was lost at the quarry, and it had been sold in the gravel to be used for the construction of this apartment, and it ended up in the wall of this apartment building And as the families moved in, they were unaware that they were being bombarded with lethal amounts of radiation and developing leukemia and dying. Damn. There you go. Did anybody else get sick from that? Like it just being in the building? Or was it just the families that lived in that one? It was like 17 other people, but the family that lived in that apartment where the source was located in that wall they're the ones that ended up developing leukemia and dying. The other families that were around, they did get sick, but none of them ended up dying. Damn. What a giant screw-up, huh? People just don't take responsibility for their actions, man. All right, Dan. So I'm interested to hear about this next one that you got. However, before we get into that, let's take our last break. It'll be really fast. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So, Dan, tell us about this radiation incident that you have all right this one occurred in bangkok in january of 2000 it is called the samut prakan incident i'm pretty sure i said it wrong i tried now two men supposedly purchased a teletherapy unit as scrap metal and decided to drive it back to their home now for the vehicle that they used when i say they drive it back drove it back home they weren't driving a car They had one of those tricycles, like trikes, pretty much. Oh, Jesus Christ. So they had this in the back of it. Like a moped? It's like a moped with three wheels, yeah. Oh, okay. So they had this 280-pound machine on the back of it, and they're heading home. This machine, of course, being a therapy unit, held a source, which was Cobalt-60, which, of course, that shit's nasty. But it had a shield made from lead around it, and then it was surrounded by stainless steel. These guys didn't know it. All they saw was just a machine that they're about to just scrap. Yeah, all they were thinking was like, damn, this thing weighs a lot. It's going to bring in a lot of money, baby. That's what they were thinking. That's what they were thinking. So the two men invited over a third buddy, which they all took turns with a pry bar trying to break this machine open. They were unsuccessful. And you figure like, all right, you know, you can't get it open. We'll just forget about it or something. Take it, the whole thing. No. They decided that they were going to call up their other buddy to have a fourth member come help them load it back onto, the, onto their like tricycle thing and take this machine to the scrapyard. Now, before they made it to the scrapyard, they decided to say, you know what, screw it. We're going to just stop at a friend's house, to which one of the men decided, you know, after they tried many times with a pry bar, that it'd be cool that, you know, sitting there, I'm just going to throw my leg on top of this thing just to relax, you know, kick back. That was a mistake on his part. Now, they spent some time there, 
the four men finally made their way to the scrapyard, not knowing that they were hauling around a radioactive source. Was the source exposed in this machine? Like, was the shield off of it? Was this source emitting waves of radiation out of it? I don't think they uh, penetrated the lead shielding, but I think they made it just partly through the steel, stainless steel box, but it was taking forever. So it was emitting some radiation, but not a lot. Correct. Okay. Now, as they got to the scrapyard, the men asked one of the employees at the scrapyard to grab a blowtorch and help them get this damn thing open. Oh my God, are you kidding me? I am not. He agreed to do it. (laughs) My God. So, as he was using the blowtorch, a second employee came up behind him and was standing pretty much directly behind him, pretty much like Overwatch, watching him cut open this stainless steel box and lead cylinder. Then all of a sudden, a yellow, foul-smelling smoke came from the machine and two pieces had fallen onto the ground. The first employee that was using the blowtorch decided to pick up both pieces to examine what it was. It was the lead shielding. <laughs> so they had an exposed source that was just like, <laughs> boof! It's like creating a bomb that you can't see that's constantly blowing up and emitting radiation nonstop, and you can't see it. Exactly. Oh, my God. So this employee was holding these, these lead pieces, and he's just like, damn, man, my hands are kind of itchy. And, th- <laughs> and then he just kind of just <laughs> tossed them. <laughs> To the side a little bit. (laughs) That's so messed up. Yeah, and then after he tossed those aside, he decides to get the blowtorch again and keep cutting the stainless steel box. Oh, my God. So the next thing they hear is a woman yelling, like, hey, you get that dang machine out of here and work on it back at your own place. I'm running a business here. It was the uh, the owner of the scrapyard. It was a a lady, and she's just like, you know, get the hell out of here. You're wasting my employees' time and shit. So, of course, they loaded the stuff back onto this, like, bike thing, and they pretty much, it was already, like, cut open, so all they had to do was just go back and just start tearing it apart. Now, the lead pieces were left there, but I'll get back to those here in a second. The rest of it, the steel box and all that stuff, was loaded back up, taken back to their home, and, of course, while they were driving back home, the four men started to feel sick and nauseous, but they were just like, you know what, whatever, you know, we're fine. We got to break this damn thing down so we're able to bring it back here and get some money for it. So, of course, that night they broke it all down, decided to get some sleep. Then the next day they returned to the scrapyard with all the pieces separated. Well, I bet you can guess what happens next, Aaron, especially considering that the lead shielding was broken at the scrapyard. They melt down the source. I don't know. No, it was putting out radiation. So everybody around the junkyard were getting sick. Oh, so they left the source there at the scrapyard. They didn't know where the source was. They didn't, even know, they didn't even see the source. Oh, my God. It was a silent killer. So all the people at the scrapyard started to show signs of being sick as well. But no one knew at the time that the two metal pieces, the, you know, a.k.a. the lead shielding, contained the source, which had been opened by the blowtorch, considering the yellow, foul-smelling smoke that came out of it. They just didn't mind it at all had been left somewhere in the junkyard, exposing them to high radiation. Now, February 2000, four of the ten that were exposed to it had been hospitalized. Three at the Samu Hospital, and then one was admitted to the Bangkok General Hospital. Now, the attending physicians were, like, studying their symptoms, just like, you know, what the hell did they get into? Like, what's causing their skin to be burning? They're shitting all over the place with diarrhea. Like, what the hell's going on? Then finally, one of the physicians realized, like, 
you know, this looks like they've been exposed to ionizing radiation. So they decided to call the OAEP, which there is the Office of Atomic Energy for Peace. Now, they ended up getting the call and they're just like, all right, you know, we're going to send out some health physicists out there to the hospital to investigate to see what's going on. Now, they had to call back the female scrapyard owner, which she was still sick, but she wasn't as bad. She explained, you know, what happened, you know, the past few days with these men bringing this machine over and all that stuff, and that the two smaller pieces of metal from before the lead shielding were actually taken to another scrap collector. Oh my God. Yeah, so they went there first to investigate those pieces to see if, you know, if that was what was causing the radiation exposure. And as they arrived and checked the area with their radiation detectors, they ended up finding the two pieces, but they were not radioactive at all. They were clean. That's weird. Yeah, so they're just like, all right, you know, I guess we'll head to the junkyard to see what we can find, since, you know, that's where it was originally cut. As they were going down a back road to the junkyard, one of the HPs, the health physicist telepoles, was still on, and it was detecting 20 times the normal radiation levels for that area. You know, 20 times the normal background radiation. And of course, you know, there's always natural occurring radiation levels. Yeah, so you always have a a background limit of radiation, which is extremely, extremely, extremely small. Exactly. Now, they got to the junkyard, and at the side entrance of the junkyard, they detected levels around one millisieverts, which was about 150 meters from the area that they were going to go search. So one millisievert is 100 millirem or 0.1 rem. So this is, you know, not too bad, but higher than the background, which I do have an image which shows, um, I forgot what they call these. Y'all do them all the time. Surveys? Surveys, that's it. Pretty much this is like a survey of the junkyard and around it. Five, 50 millisieverts. Okay. I mean, it's not too bad, but still, I mean, it's pretty bad to have it just sitting. Yeah. <laughs> sitting out there. Now, what I think made it so it doesn't seem too bad is the fact that there's so much scrap metal around. Oh, so it kind of used, it, it kind of acted as like a insulation sort of. Exactly. Which they ended up like, all right, this is where the source is, but we don't know exactly where it's at. So they ended up calling up for backup, which the emergency response team showed up. They brought in a backhoe or an excavator to help move a lot of the scrap metal out of the way. And they ended up having to place a lead wall that was about five centimeters thick around the source or pretty much the general area of it, you know, to help shield it. And then now the fact is they have no idea what the source looks like and they don't know the exact location of it. So they ended up like closing the streets all the way around the junkyard and it took them a long ass time to find it. What they ended up doing is they first tried, they wait, waited till nighttime and they tried to use a fluorescent sheet like you know use for x-rays yep and they tried to use that to hover over the areas to see if it'll shine through which it was very difficult because the moonlight was still shining so it was very hard to see but they waited till cloud covering or something came over and then they were able to spot it the source was about four centimeters long and about 2.5 centimeters wide damn that's small yeah and it was putting out about, I want to say like 32 millisieverts or something like that. Might have been a little bit higher. It was still pretty bad, though. Okay. They 
they couldn't just go in with like, say, a two meter long or like a two foot long, like tongs to pick it up or anything. Because if you got too close, you were going to get high, you know, radiation exposure. So what they ended up doing was taking a long ass piece of bamboo and attaching an electromagnet at the end of it. And they had to use that to hover over the source to grab it. Which then, of course, they put it into a lead shielded container. Which then they, of course, checked the area to make sure that there was no more radiation. So the radiation was gone once it was put in the shielding container. No contamination, which is a good thing. And then it was transferred over to an old spent fuel storage pool that went about 4.5 meters deep. Damn, double protection. Lead and a spent fuel pool. Damn. Yeah. You're taking no, no chances with that. The end result was that four of the ten people that were hospitalized had received doses of more than six gray, which is 600 rad. <laughs> God dang, so they had about a 50% chance of living in the next 30 days. Exactly. Which, pretty much three of them did end up dying two months after being exposed, which, so they lived a little bit longer than 30 days, but they did not make it. Now, the others had severe symptoms, and even people living in the area, just like outside of the junkyard, on the streets and all that stuff, Ended up going to the hospital with, you know, skin irritation, diarrhea, just pretty much. Throwing up. Yeah. Organ failure. That's one shitty way to go, might I say. Radiation poisoning. If you know that you have received a lethal amount of radiation and you're going to die, it's not like you die instantly. You die within the next, like, 30, 40, 50 days. You suffer. Yes. It sucks. But, yeah. Damn, Dan. That was the, uh... Samu Prakan incident. Well, thank you for that. I've never heard of that one. Dude, I was reading up on it. I'm just like, you know, you see a machine, something like that. Why would you just start taking pry bars to it? Why would you want to cut it open? You got to figure. There's something about it. <laughs> this kind of makes me nervous for my uncle. He has like no idea. Oh, my uncle on my mom's side, he scraps a lot of metal and stuff. He has no idea that some of that could be radioactive material, which the likelihood of it being radioactive material is very low. Yeah. Sources like this that we've talked about that have been like lost and stuff like that, all of them have to be tracked by the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They go and they check on them like every so often. And uh, once the source gets down and disintegrates to a certain amount of uh, activity, then they get taken off of that uh, tracking list. So they always know where these sources are at. And you have to have a license to actually have a radioactive material at your house or wherever you have it at. Like almost all nuclear plants have to have uh, a license that says they can store X amount of radioactive material. So a lot of this stuff is, is really increased uh, in regards of like safety and tracking and stuff like that. But you still have the stuff that like slips through the cracks. Like the Bed Bath & Beyond incident that happened here recently. They ended up purchasing a large amount of metal from India. And India ended up smelting all this metal down from scrap metal. And what was in that scrap metal is uh, radioactive material. So they ended up making all these uh, metal tissue boxes. The India company did. They sold them all to Bed Bath & Beyond, who ended up shipping them all out to all their um, United States stores. People started buying them up, and then people started noticing, oh, man, something's wrong. And then you take a meter up next to it, and you're like, holy crap, these things are, like, super radioactive. The NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, had to come out and make a statement, and Bed Bath & Beyond was in some hot water about it. But you never hear about it on the news, so there you go. Yeah. 
It makes me want to go buy a Geiger counter. Uh, I might, I might or might not have a couple of them. <laughs> you got a telephone? No, I do not. Those things are big and they're expensive. They're like twelve grand a piece. Oh yeah, all that shit's expensive. And they break super easy. I know there's a shop about thirty minutes from me. They sell like the old, old Geiger counters, which I don't know if they work. Nah, they're shit, man. They're shit. Don't don't get the. If you're gonna get any of them, you might as well spend like I don't know. I, I don't know how expensive they are, but the um, I forget what they're called. The Ronald McDonald ones. No, 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 no. Not the four fifty one Bravos or Papas. Not those. Not the Ronald McDonalds. It's the um, real small ones. Uh, oh, the Geiger counter professional nuclear radiation. Wait, that can't be right. They're only like forty, fifty bucks. No, no, no. All those are scams. You don't want to get any of those. You gotta like order it from a reputable dealer. If you buy your freaking meter on Amazon, you're gonna get ripped <laughs> off. I'll you may like... be able to find some on eBay. Uh, but even then, how would you know if they're accurate, right? Because you don't have anything to compare them to. Yeah. You know, you could be walking around and the thing could not even be calibrated, you know? Like, instruments like that have to have certain calibration set to them yearly to make sure that they're reading accurately. Ah, here it is. Uh, the rat eye. The long yellow one? No, it's a real short yellow one. The uh, Thermo Scientific Rat Eye. Here, I'll link it in Discord. Oh, those things are like super small. They can fit in your pocket and super easy to use. Hey, and the price seems uh, like they do work. How much are you selling for? $2,200. See, that's what, it, that's what I would expect, you know, to pay for an actual, uh, you know, detector. But I might or might not have some of these, Dan. So you don't have to buy any. All right. Just so you guys know, that means don't buy these small little... $20 ones that connect to your phone. <laughs> no, that does not work. Your phone does not have a detector built into it. It is impossible, okay? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> if you was to go to eBay and look up radiation detectors, man, honestly, I couldn't even, like, say to get one because, like I was saying, you don't have anything to uh, check it with. There you go. All right, so let's go on to our last story, which is our bonus one which is called the Lie Radiological Accident. Have you ever heard of this one, Dan? I have not. Oh, God. This is just as bad as all the rest of them, maybe even worse, okay? So back in 2001, three men from Lie, Georgia, Georgia as in the country, not the state in the United States, okay? Georgia the country. So there were three men there. They ended up driving to a nearby forest to gather some firewood. Now, keep in mind, during this time, it was super cold outside, it was snowing, and that is why these three men were gathering firewood. So as they gathered this wood, they came across two weird shiny canisters just sitting there, in the woods, all alone. Now, something odd about these canisters is that the men noticed that all the snow around them had melted. They decided to try and pick one of them up and immediately dropped it due to it being extremely hot to the touch. Now, instead of heading back home, the three men decided to camp outside in the forest. So they busted out their tents and all gathered into it. They lit a fire and they all sat around it. Now, since it was winter, still cold as shit, and they didn't want to get butt naked and start cuddling with one another. So they decided, hey, let's bring in those weird ass canisters outside that were super hot, we can bring them into the tent with us, 
and we can all kind of like gather up around them and use them as like a heat source. And that's what they did. They went outside, they rolled in those canisters, and they all sat around the canisters. They ate dinner, drank vodka, and guess what? Only a few moments later, all of them looked at one another, and they ended up throwing up. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This can't be serious. Dead serious. It gets worse, too. All right. Now, just this little side note for everyone. Throwing up is one of the first signs of radiation sickness. However, at this time, the three men didn't know that. They just thought that they had a stomach bug or something. You know, they just cooked over a fire. They probably didn't even cook it right. Yeah, they're like, oh, man, this vodka doesn't taste that good. That's why we threw up. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. So after the men threw up, they're like, oh, man, I don't feel good. My tummy hurts. It doesn't feel good. So they decided to lay down and try to sleep off this stomach bug. The men decided to use the sources, these radioactive sources, as like a heat source. At the time, of course, like Dan said, they, they didn't know that they were radioactive sources. All they knew is that there was these little silver things that were emitting these large amounts of heat. So to keep themselves warm in this tent, they positioned their backs as close as they could to these little canisters. Oh, my God. The next day, the men still felt like shit, but didn't think much of it. Eventually, they went home, and 20 days later, all three men were hospitalized with radiation sickness, radiation burns, and severe damage to their organs. The man who stayed the furthest away from the capsule was released on January 23rd of 2002 and survived. The other two men, who had their backs pretty much next to the capsule all night long, had to stay in the hospital for a lot longer. One of them was hospitalized for over a year and required extensive skin grafts from radiation burns. He did end up surviving and was eventually discharged from the hospital in March of 2003, 13 months after he had slept next to the radioactive capsule. God. Now, the third guy ended up developing a large radiation ulcer on much of his upper left back. Despite intensive care, repeated antibiotics, multiple surgeries, and an attempted skin graft, the wound did not heal. Eventually, he developed sepsis and died of heart failure in May of 2004, 893 days after he had slept next to the radioactive capsule. Now, an investigation started into where these radioactive capsules came from, Eventually, it was discovered that the radioactive sources were unlabeled thermoelectric radioactive generator cores, which had been improperly dismantled, unlabeled, and left behind by the Soviet Union. (laughs) They just said, screw these sources, take the labels off of them, just toss them into the woods. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. Suffered for 893 days. Wow. What a shitty way to go. Yeah. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, and aliens and Bigfoots and Illuminati reptilian lizard people. Those are some radiation accidents. Now, usually with our topics each week, we go into, you know, strange facts and findings and then into theories. However, with these individual stories, we pretty much covered all the strange facts and findings inside of the stories themselves. So there you go. That's pretty much today's episode. And if you enjoyed these types of stories and you want more of them, You can check out our Patreon episode today in which we cover nuclear disasters that you have probably never heard of that are even crazier than these. I'm talking about people 
getting a giant ass rod uh, that got ejected and went up through an operator and pinned him to the ceiling and he was super radioactive that they had to cut him up into different sections and bury him in a lead casket, multiple ones, in different spots because of how radioactive he was. Shit like that. We, we cover those type of stories in today's Patreon episode. So if you want to check it out, no pressure, but if you want to, it's only five bucks to sign up and you get access to all the other Patreon episodes as well. You know, that's the first nuclear story that I was told when I first started working. <laughs> because it's the craziest, right? Yeah, it's just like, are you trying to make me quit now or are you just trying to tell me something <laughs> crazy? Yeah. I heard it and I was like, no way that's real. I went and looked it up and I was like, oh my God, it is real. And that's a good thing about the nuclear industry is that their records are immaculate. They have about a thousand different oversight committees and shit that keep records on everything. And it's all published to the public, like the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You can go look up anything you want on there. It's all public. Go take a look at it. They publish everything, and it's de super detailed. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So do you have anything to add to today's episode, Dan? Don't dismantle any machines that you don't know what's inside. That's all I got to say. Oh, man. All right. So that's the end of the episode today. I hope everybody enjoyed it. So now we're going to transition into this week's On the Scene. So if you're unfamiliar with what our On the Scene is, it's pretty much uh, somebody goes and interviews someone on the street or a family member or themselves, and they talk about current conspiracy happenings, their thoughts and opinions on various beliefs regarding aliens, Bigfoots, or pretty much whatever. They record it. They make sure it's less than two minutes long. They submit it to our email, and it gets put into a queue. And uh, each week, we pull the top audio file that's in the list, and uh, we play it. And anyone can do this. I mean, even the person listening to this right now, yes, you. The person who just said me, yes, you. You can do it. Just get your phone, record it on your phone, make sure the audio is less than two minutes long. It doesn't have to be in perfect quality, okay? Give me your thoughts or interview somebody and give me their thoughts. Send it to our emails, Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. That's A-A-R-O-N at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. Or you can send it to Dan, D-A-N at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. And just like I said, boop, we'll stick it in the line to be played. All right. So this week's On the Scene is from Amir. And we're going to play that right now. Hello, Aaron and Dan, and welcome to On the Scene with me. I'm here, and today I'm alone, so I'm going to be doing a recording and on this scene with myself. So let's get started with question number one. What do I think of Bigfoot? So I think Bigfoot was an extinct animal that, was, that got extinct a long time ago during the Jurassic period, and scientists found a way to bring him back through his DNA and in his bones. So they kept all of this a secret from the public and found a way to bring him back. But this resulted in an accident that actually regenerated a lot of Bigfoots. But uh, they escaped and went into the forest. So I think that's a really cool theory I made myself. And it's time for question number two. So I actually have, a, it's not a question, it's like a story I have about actually two UFOs or glitching in the matrix or two UFOs actually crashing. So when I was in southern Iran, it's called uh, Hormoz, an island in southern Iran, as I said. 
uh, I was actually hiking, and the star, the stars were really beautiful in the sky, and uh, suddenly I saw two spherical objects in the sky with red and green lights that were like circling each other, and when they were circling each other, they were actually like after like a bit they actually hit each other and this resulted in an explosion like for example take 100 meters 200 meters in the sky and the fun part is though i was actually the only one that saw that i asked my sister my cousins my uncle nobody saw anything in the sky that day but i saw something and i think it was really fun to share with you guys and this might be a glitch in the matrix as i said or two UFOs actually crashing and me being the only one who saw it. So if you guys want to hear from me more, you can just email me back. And yeah, that's my time and my on the scene. Hope you guys have a great day and bye. Damn it, Amir, you went over by six seconds. Six seconds, man. I said two minutes. 120 seconds. I'm just kidding. Hey, very articulate. I liked it. Very well spoken. Very good at storytelling. Audio quality was good. You can't ask for a better on the scene, in my opinion. Right. And a theory about Bigfoot. I'd never thought about that. It, it almost kind of reminds me of like a Jurassic Park thing where, you know, they found the DNA. They were able to reanimate or bring back, you know, a Bigfoot. They probably grew it. They probably even grew it in the egg, for example. Who knows? But. Yummy. Yeah. And then, you know, they had multiple ones. And then they found out that, I guess, these Bigfoots escaped and then they reproduced, you could say. Now they're everywhere again, so they might have been extinct, but now they're repopulating. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Good job, Amir. I'm proud of you. Hey, and if you ever go uh, back to uh, Iran again, take a video camera with you. I want to see some UFOs crashing into each other. Send pictures, send videos. If you ever go back to uh, Iran, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see uh, spaceships crash into each other. And hey, I would love to hear from you again. Send in another on the scene. That's right. Love you, and I'm proud of you. Much love. All right, uh, so now we're going to go to shout-outs. And you know what? I'm just going to jump straight into it, you know? I'm just going to jump straight into birthday shout-outs this week. Do it. I got one, two, three. So, actually, this is not even a birthday shout-out to anyone. I got an email from Haley T. She says, happy birthday, Aaron. Hope it's a good one. And keep up all the amazing podcasts. Makes my day so much better. Well, you know what, Haley? Thank you. And she sent me a picture of Snoop Dogg. It's a drawing of Snoop Dogg. And it says, shizzle my nizzle. Have yourself a happy birthday, Dizzle. Nah, I, like it. I love it. I thank you. It's amazing. Thank you. All right. So this first birthday shout out goes to Valerie. It's from Laura L. It says, hey, I got a friend that, whose birthday is uh, May 27th and I screwed up because I'm such a horrible friend. No, she didn't say that, but she's like, hey. I'd really appreciate a belated birthday shout-out for my friend Valerie. I know she's going to be stoked when she hears it. So, Valerie, your birthday was on May 27th. Laura screwed up. However, we're going to make it up to you, you know, for her. So, here you go. Dan's going to sing you Backstreet Boys. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, I'm going to sing Backstreet Boys? Everybody. Yeah, yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> All right. I'm done. Happy birthday, Valerie. I hope it's a good one, and uh, I hope you had a great time. Happy birthday. All right, so now I'm going to move on to Instagram shout-outs, if that's okay, Dan. Go for it. I just got a few of them. I know I missed last week's Insta- Instagram shout-outs because my phone died. To be honest with you, my phone might be dead right now. 
I never charge it. He never charges it. Uh, it's 20%. Let's see. Shout out to Josh. He says, Bigfoot 2024, baby. Woo! Hell yeah. Uh, shout out to Lexi. She sent me a birthday message and happy birthday, Aaron. And then Madison said, happy birthday, Aaron. Thank you both. Uh, you know, both of you sent me a birthday message before Dan even told me happy birthday. So that really tells you a lot. That does. <laughs> I had to. I, I'll talk. We'll mention that at the end of the show. I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> uh, shout out to Ben. Shout out to Nathaniel. To Talahal Wahid Kalashahara. I don't know if I pronounced your name right, but hey, I, I tried as hardest as I could, okay? Um, Melissa Risky, Chase Jones, Travis Velpe, Michelle, uh, Tyson Hawley, uh, let's see, Strouty, uh, George, George Ducanis, 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 I don't know how you pronounce your name. I'm sure you don't even pronounce it George. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Jay Jensen, Deshira. The official official Hamza Shahala, the T9 virus survivor. Shout out to you. Uh, Roger Melendez, Buck, Ryan, Andrew Wichman, and Myra. And hold on, one more from Shaba Reese. She said, huge fan. I love the show and how hard you guys work. Aaron, I love how much you love everyone else and are always proud. Dan, I absolutely live for all your knowledge nuggets, and I truly feel like you guys are my friends, and we get to hang out every Thursday. Can I get a birthday shout-out? It's next week on June 1st. Hopefully this makes it in time. I love you guys. Proud of you, Reese. Well, hey, you know what, Reese? You are our friend. You show up every Thursday. You sit here, and you are not here, but you sit there, and you listen to us, and you know what? I consider you a friend. Of course. I don't even know you, but you know what? If you came up to me in real life and you're like, hey, Aaron, I listen to you. Let's hang out. Let's go grab a beer. I'd be like, yeah, sure. I don't drink. Uh, not because I'm an alcoholic, but I just don't like to. But I'll get a soda pop with you and I'll talk conspiracies or we can talk anything. Doesn't matter. I'm your friend. Hell yeah. Dan, on the other hand, wouldn't, he would tell you to screw off and say, oh, I'm not Dan. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm, I'm a really nice person, okay? Don't let Aaron fool you. He is. He is. Dan, legitimately in my entire friendship with Dan, he he is the nicest person I've ever met, by far. That's right. So, there you go. I'll give you the 20 bucks later for saying that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, and by the way, Reese, uh, when you get this, yesterday would have been your birthday. So, happy birthday. I hope it was a good one. I hope you got to spend uh, the time with your loved ones. I hope it was great. And... Uh, Keep on keeping on. That's right. You're awesome. Happy birthday, Reese. If I missed anybody in their birthday shout out, send me an email in the subject line, write birthday. Okay. It's easy for me to look up and find. Don't send me an Instagram message. I'm just getting flooded with them and then they don't load right for some reason. It screws everything up. So just send me an email. It says birthday in the subject line. So it's easy for me to look up each week when I do my shout outs. So there you go. That's my shout outs. What do you got, Dan? All right. I got a short list from Facebook. Uh, Konal, I think that's how you say your name. I've never seen it spelled this way. C-O-N-A-L-L. Connell. Connell. I think, think that's it. Connell. Connell Q. John Haney and Aaron Boy. Andrea S. Tyler G. Joe B. Then shout out to Victor Ramirez. Uh, Shamir N. Eduardo T. Renee B. Uh, William C. 
Jade L, Jordan F, Brianna H, and then shout out to 80 on, uh, from email. And that's it. Short list. Hey, I like it. And you know what? What? You can confess your sins now, Dan, since we're done with shout outs. All right. All right. Confess your sins. So I stayed up late the night before. Then. No, give him the context of this. <laughs> give him the context. It was my birthday on the 30th. Okay. Right. Aaron's birthday was on the 30th. On the 29th, I stayed up real late. I think I fell asleep probably about 5 a.m. When I woke up, we ended up having a meeting. Me, Aaron, and Caleb. We all had a meeting. Went to the meeting. Caleb, who's the merchandise guy. Yep, he's the one that controls uh, support at Theories. And, you know, we had the meeting and all that. Then afterwards, me and Caleb were working on some stuff about the website, talking it over. And then we both, we all parted ways. I'm over here researching, and I'm sitting here looking at my screen and i keep for some reason what what time was this when you started looking at your screen oh i don't remember it was late it was late. it was like four or five and keep in mind we've already did the meeting at like noon or one i've already had my uh freaking birthday breakfast of a arby's roast beef sandwich don't judge me <laughs> i only get arby's once a year okay and i decide to get it on my birthday and it's my birthday breakfast okay Hey. Extra cheddar and extra horsey sauce. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it was about six o'clock, <laughs> 6 p.m. So, yeah, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, I wonder if my best friend's going to tell me happy birthday today. <laughs> so as I sat here researching, I kept looking at the calendar on my you know, computer. I'm just like, hmm, May 30th. It's like something about that day I know is important. But what is it? I'm just like, I mean, yeah, there's Memorial Day. That's pretty important. I'm just like, you know, I had a buddy in high school's birthday that was today. And that's the same day as Aaron's birthday. And I just like start, kept thinking, it was like, oh, shit, Aaron's birthday. <laughs> as I said it, just pretending like I didn't even know what it was. It's like, oh, shit, it's Aaron's birthday. So, of course, I text Caleb. I'm like, dude, we didn't tell Aaron happy birthday during the meeting at all. Like, it just totally slipped our minds. So we both ended up texting him and telling him happy birthday. And then, of course, Aaron made us feel bad. <laughs> I text them in the group together after they separately text me and said happy birthday at the same time. I text them in the group and I said, okay, which one of you figured out it first that it was my birthday and text the other and then y'all realized, oh shit, we forgot to tell Aaron. And then you both decided to text me separately like you both remembered at the same time. And then Dan fessed up and said, I remembered. Now, and then I said, kiss the ring and you <laughs> shall be forgiven. I liked, I liked Caleb's excuse that he said to me. We were working. It was business hours. He waited until he was off the clock to tell you happy birthday. <laughs> oh, my God. No, in all seriousness, I mean, it didn't bother me at all. I thought it was hilarious, to be honest, because I knew once they would fi figure this out that it was, oh, shit, I didn't tell him Aaron. I didn't tell Aaron it was his birthday. I knew that they would feel bad and I can kind of milk it a little bit. And then, I, and then I would feel bad and then I'd have to reassure them. Look, honestly, I don't care. It's just another day for me. What I did is I had Arby's for breakfast, which is the unique thing. Besides that, I just had a normal day. I researched, I answered a lot of emails, had a couple meetings that day. It was just a normal day for me, nothing special. Just so you know, your birthday present was ordered on the 28th of May. So I didn't forget. I knew it was coming up. I just forgot that day. I mean, I didn't want a birthday present at all. Oh, you're getting one. What I got you, I think, I honestly hope you do like it. I think it's badass. I can't tell you. I want it to be a surprise when you get it. Okay, well, I'll post it on Instagram when I get it. It might be a while, though, because it's, uh, it's going to be hand-painted and everything. It's not a painting. Not a painting. 
But seriously, I don't want people to think that I'm like some asshole who's like, think of my birthday, think of me, think of me. I honestly don't care. I just think it's funny. And hey, another funny thing is that uh, my mom called me on the 29th, a day before my birthday, to tell me happy birthday. Guess what? My grandmother did too. <laughs> she told me happy birthday on the 29th. And it's like, hey, I was born on the 30th. And this isn't the first time this has happened. A few years ago, I went to my mom's house on my birthday. And I was like, what's up? And she had not called me all day. And uh, she's like, nothing. I'm just cleaning out my garage. I was like, eh, okay. She's like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, no, nothing. Just seeing what you were up to. She's like, oh, okay. I'm going to keep cleaning out my garage. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go eat some pizza. And then I'm going to go buy a birthday cake for myself. She's like, today's not your birthday. I'm like, yeah, it is. She's like, no, you're not. You were born on the 31st. It's like, mom. You had me. I was born on the 30th. And she's like, oh, my God, you were. And today is the 30th. Oh, my God. And I'm like, seriously, it doesn't matter to me. I just think it's funny. Oh, yeah. That's, it's happened. People forget about me, and it's okay. I don't take it personally. My parents have done the same thing. Even though I was born three days after my mom's birthday, she uh, forgot about my birthday. Yeah, I don't, I don't take it personally. I just think it's kind of funny. No, it's, it's at that point now. It's like it's just another birthday. Yeah. Of course, they're still going to make me feel bad about it, though. I'm going to milk it for all I can until next year when you forget again. I'm going to cancel that birthday present. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You were all amazing. Every single one of you. I truly mean that. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone.